You're listening to Conspiracy, Fears, and Mystery. Due to the graphic nature of this content, listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Conspiracy, Fears, and Mysteries, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the macabre, the unexplained, and of course, true crime. I'm your host, Ralphie, and I'll be bringing you your weekly dose of conspiracy, fears, and mysteries. What's going on, CFM family, man? And I'm your host, Ralphie, again, bringing you another true crime and just weird story. This one's really weird. This one's coming from South America and just some weird stuff. And I read this story and uh, I was sitting down on the couch and I decided I'm going to do an episode on this because I don't do an episode on every single story I read or every single true crime thing, uh, you know, that I watch and uh, every single doc or anything. But I do pick... The ones that I think are to just kind of affect me the most, whether it be it's something really strange or really messed up or something I think you should share. Yeah, that I should share. I'm sorry. Or if it's uh, maybe an unsolved case, especially unsolved cases, because you never know who um, out there might have some kind of information that might solve the this case. Now, this particular case is has already been solved it's already been through the ringer and it's shut and closed i believe the term is shut and closed shut and yeah shut and closed but it is really strange nevertheless it was strange because when i read it it threw me for a loop uh it's something i think i think it would make a great movie if somebody made a movie about this there is of course uh murder involved death um unfortunately of people uh, there's bad people and there's good people, whatever. It's, this has pretty much everything, but it's just the the strange twist of it, and so that we can see the the strange way or the the mystery of the human brain, how the how the human brain, how the human psyche operates. Now, this story again. This is not something that I wrote. This is something I actually did some research on, but as I always i usually always revert back to where my main source one of my main sources the murder minute app and you could download that on the app store or google play and this was written by jonathan wright this story written for the murder minute app by jonathan wright i did not write this i am just narrating it reading it and discussing it with you guys after i read it so this Ladies and gentlemen, is the weird and strange case of Rodrigo Rosenberg. Rodrigo Rosenberg was quite proficient at his job as a lawyer, which involved him dealing with many strange cases. He achieved his master's degree in law from both Harvard and Cambridge universities. He was an affectionate father of four children as well as being a well-known hotshot lawyer among the other competitioners of his profession. Rosenberg always knew what he was doing. He was exceptionally skilled at convincing people and leading them where he wanted them to go. 
But the thing that made Rosenberg's life so strange was neither his gift nor his intelligence. You see, Rodrigo Rosenberg knew exactly when he was going to die. And no, he wasn't diagnosed with a lethal disease. He was murdered in 2009. And right before it happened, he recorded a video message and exactly predicted his own murder event along with the names of people who were going to be responsible for his death. Rodrigo Rosenberg was born in Guatemala, populated by people who were going through poverty, famine, and different hardships. As he grew up, he took a particular interest in cars. He owned a Mercedes himself and used to watch the F1 races each year in Indianapolis. Rosenberg married twice, but in his final years, he lived a solitary life by himself in his house in Guatemala. He was a wealthy man and never really had to work hard. However, he was very passionate about learning. When he took academic lessons at Cambridge, his English language skills were almost non-existent. So he came up with an excuse and pretended to have undergone a surgery on his vocal cords, promptly making him unable to speak. In the meantime, he bought a TV and started to improve his language skills. After three months, he was capable of speaking English with fluency and confidence. He wasn't a religious man, but he cared deeply about good and evil and was fascinated by the clarity of law and order. Rosenberg was also involved with many cases relating to powerful people such as business owners or even government officials. But one client stood out amongst the rest. Khalil Musa. Khalil Musa was a Lebanese immigrant who at first lived a life of poverty, but managed to gain riches with the passage of time. He was traditional and hardworking and was considered to be one of the few rich people in the country who refused bribery and all its corrupted manifestations. Musa was 76 when the incident took place. At the time, he mostly relied on his younger daughter, Marjorie, to manage the business. Marjorie was 42. She was married and had two children. Every day at noon, Marjorie drove her father from the factory, which was outside the city, to their house. On April 14, 2009, the plan was as usual. Outside the factory, Marjorie stopped at a red light while her father was sitting beside her. At that moment, a person approached their car and came near the passenger seat as if he was about to ask a question. Then, he aimed a 9mm pistol at Musa and shot him. He then hopped on a motorcycle, waiting for him and escaped the crime scene. The passenger window was broken. Both father and daughter were shot in the chest, bathed in blood. Police arrived sometime after, but it was too late and they were both pronounced dead. After Rosenberg heard about the incident, he promptly rushed to the scene and was devastated to witness the death of Musa and his daughter. Apparently, after he saw the crime scene and headed back home, he cried for two hours non-stop. This was surprising to people around him since Musa never had been an important client. He was neither a close friend nor an old acquaintance. The mystery was solved when Rosenberg told his son that for more than a year, he and Marjorie had had an affair. The plan was to get married, but none of them wanted to reveal their relationship until Marjorie's divorce. They were deeply in love, 
but now she was gone. The shooting incident affected all the powerful and influential people in the country. Khalil Musa knew Alvaro Colom, Guatemala's president, who had a hand in the textile industry too. On the other hand, Marjorie was a friend of Gustavo Alejos, Colom's private security, whose brother was the head of the Congress. The death of Musa sent an important message to others. If Musa could be killed, no one was really safe. Thousands of people attended the funeral. Afterwards, many of the business leaders and influential leaders of the country demanded that the authorities investigate the crime. The assassination itself once again proved that the Guatemalans were helpless. In the meantime, a jeweler contacted Rosenberg and informed him that before she died, Marjorie had ordered a gift for him. The gift was a wedding ring. Rosenberg told his friend, Mendizabal, that Marjorie had also sent a message alongside the gift. Mendizabal, the longtime friend of Rosenberg, was an aged person who ran shops and retail stores in Guatemala. But above all, he was Guatemala's most notorious spy. He had many ears and always looked for any news or rumors to exploit. Some people believe that Mendizabal had data and information regarding every single person in Guatemala. Mendizabal said that after the burial, Rosenberg met him and swore an oath to venture into the depths of hell if needs be. To find the person who murdered the Musas, Mendizabal agreed to help Rosenberg on the investigation. After the funeral, Rosenberg and Mendizabal checked a videotape of the factory from a day before the murder. They checked the tape over and over looking for a valuable clue. They saw a truck parked near the, the factory. The driver got in and out of the truck multiple times. Then they saw Marjorie. She was getting in her car. Rosenberg was desperate. He looked at her and touched the screen, but she was gone now. Marjorie drove the car with her father and the truck followed them. Rosenberg then understood the assassins had simulated their plan a day before the assassination. The hit squad had an accurate plan. They shot Khalil Musa nine times. The bullet that caused Marjorie's death actually passed through her father first. In Guatemala, many of the criminal cases remained unsolved. Rumors whispered that Khalil Musa was murdered by one of his employees because of workplace harassment. Rosenberg didn't care much about the rumors, and he knew Khalil Musa was a respectable fellow. At long last, a lead emerged. Mendizabal advised Rosenberg to investigate two government positions which Khalil Musa was nominated for months ago. The nominations were for board of directors in two different institutions, both highly related to the affairs of the government. One of those institutions was called Ban Rural. It was the Rural Development Bank. President Colom once mentioned Ban Rural as the administration's financial arm. All of the bank's programs were controlled by Sandra de Colom, the president's wife and Guatemala's first lady. Musa consulted Rosenberg in the matter of this government position before he died. 
Rosenberg warned him that entering the scene of Guatemalan politics is madness. Rosenberg didn't see the opportunity as a good idea, but Musa insisted that he could actually do something good for the country with the power of that position. The nomination never went through and no one knew why. Mendizabal believed that lots of people were competing for control over the positions and Musa's uncompromising ethics were considered a threat to their work. Musa's older daughter, Asisa, told them her father was threatened many times because of his nomination. Rosenberg kept researching the files and documents related to Musa's until one day he told Mendizabal that someone called and threatened him over the phone. He told his friends that his apartment was under surveillance. Rosenberg also told Mendizabal that Gustavo Alejos, President Colón's private secretary, warned him to stop investigating the assassination. Mendizabal advised Rosenberg to leave the country for a while. He agreed to do so, yet he continued with his search, believing he was very close to cracking the case and finding the people responsible. Eventually, Rodrigo told Mendizabal that he had found some irrefutable proof and planned to present them at the International Criminal Court. On Saturday evening, May 9th, 2009, Rosenberg called Marjorie's sister and told her that he was going on a bicycle ride the following day to clear his mind. On Sunday, the incident took place. A gunman approached Rosenberg and ran towards him as he was riding his bicycle. The man repeatedly shot Rosenberg with a pistol and killed him. The cops surrounded the crime scene. Rosenberg's chauffeur arrived and found his boss lying dead on the grass. Rosenberg was buried on Monday in the same cemetery where Marjorie was placed. At the time of the funeral, President Colom was in a meeting when his private secretary, Gustavo Alejos, interrupted him. Alejos had just received a phone call from someone who said something weird was happening at the Rosenberg's funeral. Eduardo, Rodrigo's son, talked about his father and the bravery that ultimately proved to be his downfall. Then, Mendizabal gave a heartwarming speech. Mendizabal proceeded to say something that would forever change the world. He claimed that Rosenberg gave him a video to be released in the event of his sudden death. Mendizabal offered a copy of that video on CD to everyone at the funeral. Mendizabal admitted to watching the video after Rosenberg's death and was well aware of the consequences that it would bring for Guatemala and the Guatemalan regime. Alejo's cousin took one of the Mendizabal CDs and delivered it to the president's office and everyone gathered to watch the video. In the video, Rodrigo Rosenberg sat alone in front of a camera with a microphone. He wore a navy blue suit and a wedding ring, Marjorie's last gift. And so he began to speak. Good afternoon. My name is Rodrigo Rosenberg Marzano and, alas, if you are hearing or seeing this message, it means that I've been murdered by President Alvaro Colom with the assistance of Secretary Gustavo Alejos. The reason I'm dead and you're therefore watching this message is only and exclusively because during my final moments I was lawyer to Mr. Khalil Musa and his daughter Marjorie Musa who in cowardly fashion were assassinated by President Alvaro Colom with the consent of his wife Sandra de Colom 
and with the help of Gustavo Alejos. Rosenberg claimed to have gathered evidence and knowledge of a conspiracy. He said President Colom, the First Lady, and other members of the Colom administration had been using Boon Rural to launder money and cover their criminal activities. Musa could not bear the thought of complying with those unlawful activities, and his nomination was a threat to their administration, so they preemptively eliminated him. During the 18-minute video message, Rosenberg slowly went from calm to angry, and his voice got stronger with each point. I don't have any desire to die. I have four divine children. The best brother life could have given me and many marvelous friends. He said, the last thing I wanted was to deliver this message, but I hope my death helps this country start down a better path. Rosenberg asked Vice President Espada, whom he described as not a thief nor an assassin, to seek justice. Rodrigo finished his message by saying, but the only reality that counts is this. If you saw and heard this message, it is because I was killed by Alvaro Colom and Sandra de Colom. With the help of Gustavo Alejos, Guatemalans, the time has come. It is time. Good afternoon. The video message was over. After a long silence, Colom said to those who were present that his enemies were trying to destroy his work. They want us out of here, he said. There were many questions. Why did Rosenberg ask Vice President Espada to supersede Colón? Were Espada and Rosenberg working together with big plans for the country? Alejos was terrified. He thought that he might get arrested. He even offered his resignation. But Colón assured him, we are going to get through this. After a while, Rosenberg's video was uploaded to YouTube and even the national television broadcasted. People and media agencies sought answers. Colom and Alejos wrote and published a statement to satiate the masses. Obviously, they rejected everything with their statement, but that did not help. People had had enough. Where was the president? Why was he hiding? A newspaper reported Rosenberg's story, dubbing it the greatest political crisis in the history of Guatemalan democracy. One Tuesday morning, many Guatemalan people gathered in the city's central plaza. They were dressed in white and they screamed outside the National Palace. President Colom prepared himself for an interview with CNN. During the interview, Colom mentioned Rosenberg's video as part of a plan to destabilize the government. He was nervous throughout because at that point, no one would believe his words. Many asked Colom to resign, but he persisted. People idolized Rosenberg. The place where he was assassinated became a shrine to many Guatemalans. They set a large wooden cross in the grass, which read, You didn't die in vain. Everything was about to collapse within the borders of Guatemala. The USA was also involved in the affairs of Guatemala. The US ambassador, Stephen McFarland, told President Colón that there was only one solution to this crisis, and that was to turn over the investigation of the Rosenberg case to one of the United Nations organizations called the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, or CISIG. The main purpose of CISIG is to fight against systematic crimes, violence, and corruption. By that time, CISIG was the only hope for justice in this case. 
President Colom agreed to pass the case to Sisig. The fact of Guatemala's democracy depended on them now. They were a professional team of judges and investigators led by a former Spanish judge named Carlos Castresana. In the first move, Castresana met Colom and told him he needed complete independence to crack the case. Colom made a promise not to interfere. Later on that same day, Castresana met Rosenberg's son, Eduardo, and vowed to bring down the president and impeach him if he was found guilty. In the Sisig office, Castresana gathered top investigators and began his job with high caution, realizing that this may well be his most important case. The team reviewed all of the videos obtained from the security cameras around Rosenberg's crime scene. Castresana found that a car followed Rosenberg's bicycle that day. The car was a Mazda 6, and luckily for them, there were only 50 of those in Guatemala. After three weeks, they found a car owner, a 33-year-old man named William Gilberto Santos Divas. They knew he was there when the shooting happened. By the time, Santos was the most significant clue of Castresana's investigation. Meanwhile, a person named Mario David Garcia showed up and claimed that he was the one who recorded Rosenberg's video. The team knew that Garcia and Mendizabal had associations in the past. Castresana believed that they both had a role in recording Rosenberg's video. They were right. In May 2009, Mendizabal and Garcia actually acknowledged their role in the controversial affair. Less than a month after Rosenberg's death, Colón's Minister of the Interior told Castresana that he had found a witness who would be able to reveal the entire conspiracy. The team met the witness on a soccer field in a small town near San Luis. The witness revealed that a gang named Pythagoras had been hired to assassinate Rosenberg in exchange for $180,000. The first payment had been handled by a person named Roxana Baldetti. Baldetti was a member of Congress and the vice president's candidate for Otto Perez Molina, Colón's rival. It was at this moment when reporters unexpectedly showed up at the soccer field. Even though Castresana had asked Colón's minister of the interior to keep the meeting a secret. News that Baldetti and Molina were the masterminds of Rosenberg's assassination spread like wildfire throughout the media platforms. The team, Sisig, investigated all the clues presented by the witness diligently, but none of them turned out to be solid. Castresana realized that the witness had been hired by the government. The government denied these allegations, but he was angry. He sent a formal complaint to the Colom administration and the United Nations. The government finally stopped meddling. Remember Santos, the owner of the Black Mazda 6? Three months after Rosenberg's death, a Chilean agent of Sisig was eavesdropping on Santos' conversations when he realized that Santos and everyone around him were part of a gang of professional killers. The question was simple. Who hired them? Sisig knew that the gang had their own cryptic language, and they managed to crack it. One time, Rosenberg's name was mentioned in their conversations, and the team decided to incarcerate one of the gang's members. Much to their surprise, the team learned that the assassins were hired by two brothers named Francisco and Estuardo Valdez. 
The brothers had a large pharmaceutical company, but one particular detail blew their minds. They were Rosenberg's relatives. The Valdez brothers hired the gang and paid them $40,000. Things slowly began to come together for Castresana and his team. There was still a big question. Why would the Valdez brothers, who were related to Rosenberg, want him dead? And what about Rosenberg's video message and his controversial statements? And who gave the killers the information that would allow them to take out Rodrigo during his bicycle ride? Castresana and Sisig looked through Rosenberg's life to find someone with enough motivation to kill him. The team got a phone number from Mendizabal, whose owner once threatened Rodrigo. It turned out that this was once the same number with which the mysterious person called the gang and gave them the information to kill Rosenberg. So now there was a new big clue for Sisig. To whom did the number belong? They traced the cell phone and found out it was bought with cash to remain anonymous. But the phone had a tax form with a signature. The signature belonged to Rosenberg's driver. Sissig brought in the man for questioning. The driver simply confirmed that he was taxed with buying two phone numbers with cash. By who? Rosenberg himself. Rosenberg's secretary, who validated this story by confirming that the driver gave the phone numbers to Rosenberg. The driver then confessed that Rosenberg kept one of the numbers and told him to give the other one to Francisco Valdez. Castesana was baffled. Did Rosenberg buy the phone numbers used by his own murderers? And then there came the last nail in the coffin. Telecommunications reported that all of those threatening calls came from one place inside Rosenberg's own apartment. Rosenberg had been making threats to himself. The team found yet another piece of incriminating evidence. Rosenberg had issued a check for $40,000 signed to the Valdez brothers. That was the exact amount of money given to the hit gang. It was unbelievable, an unfathomable revelation. Yet the truth nonetheless. Rosenberg was the author of his own assassination. It was neither President Colón nor the First Lady or even Gustavo Alejos. It was all Rosenberg himself. Castresana reported that Rosenberg had a perfect plan. If the driver hadn't signed that tax form, they would have never found out the truth. Rosenberg went to the Valdez brothers and told them about his plan to take down a guy who threatened him. He didn't tell the brothers that he himself was the target. But wasn't it obvious from the very first start? Why would Rosenberg, a brilliant lawyer, go for a bicycle ride alone in one of the most dangerous cities in the world? The answer to that question can be found in his personal life. As a desperate man who lost his lover, Rosenberg sought justice. He found some evidence that showed the government was involved, but as a lawyer, Rosenberg knew the evidence was not good enough to win the case. Moreover, Mendizabal discouraged him from going after the government, calling it a futile effort. Castresana believed that Rosenberg knew there was no justice in Guatemala, 
Rosenberg was fully prepared for his own death. He wrote a will and brought two graves beside each other, one for himself and one for Marjorie. Then he planned everything to usher in a new age of justice in his country. Rosenberg utilized the typical occurrences of the corrupt Guatemalan society to his advantage, professional killers and false clues. Castresana reported everything he had found on national television and both Colom and Alejos were exonerated. Castresana and his team essentially saved the democratic system of Guatemala, proving that even a complicated case such as Rosenberg's murder can be solved in a corrupted place like that. But there is still one important question left. Who killed the Musas? After the completion of Rosenberg's case, Sisig checked all the security cameras and documents surrounding the assassination of Khalil Musa and his daughter. Casasana once again proved to be the true hero of this story by revealing that Musa was not so innocent after all. Khalil had been buying contraband for his textile company from a criminal network. Then he ran into a problem with the gang and refused to pay them. Twelve men were arrested because of Musa's murder. One thing is for certain though, everyone has a secret. Khalil Musa covered his activities with a criminal network. Rosenberg and Marjorie had an affair. Rosenberg misled the world about his death. The Guatemalan government tried to cover up their corruption. The shrine of Rodrigo Rosenberg is abandoned now and the cross is broken. A reporter once found a discarded banner with a sign that read, Rodrigo Rosenberg, National Hero. So this story really, really fascinated me just because of the, the twist in the you know towards the end that he did it himself to himself, and uh, to me this is more of a, I don't think I don't think this was this was uh, that he really wanted to seek justice for the country. I really I I think it was more of a crime of passion of a crime of heartbreak. He was heartbroken that the woman he was going to marry and that he loved, who he was having an affair with, was dead because of this. Now he just happened to use everything else around him, all the all those pieces of you know corrupt people and you know criminal activity in his um in in his country to justify kind of a suicide, you could say, because. He planned his own murder. That's it's insane. He planned his own murder, and um, you know, it, it just goes to show you that people, humans, are really capable of anything, anything, not just murder, but and not just suicide, but combining both, murder, suicide on himself. He and he planned, and he was gonna take down a lot of people with him. Now. Were those people completely good? No, just like the story said, everybody has secrets. There were secrets everywhere. Everybody has secrets. In this case, in this case, every single entity here had secrets. I'm pr- probably the reporters had secrets. You know, um, it's just amazing to see. Amazing. With that being said, guys. Tell me what you guys think. You don't got to tell me a secret. You can leave a comment in my uh, Instagram page. 
or you can leave a comment right here on uh, Anchor FM. If you're listening to it, there will be a link on wherever you're listening to this to go to Anchor and you can leave a voice message with what you think of this story. Um, if you've heard of this story, because this was the first time that I heard of this story. So let me know what you guys think of this. I will play it. I will play it on the podcast. I will put it as part of the podcast. I am allowed to do that on Anchor, Anchor FM. And of course, you can follow me on Mystery Crime Cigar on Instagram, Mystery Crime Cigar on Instagram, as I am right now. I'm starting to record like little videos. Every time I record the podcast, I'm going to record a little video. So you know I'm legit. You know what I mean? My hair's messed up in the video, but oh well. And as always, don't forget to like and subscribe. Follow me on social media. And I will see you.